Well, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah. There toward the middle of your Bible. You can turn there in a Bible in front of you. You'll see it on the screen, or you can swipe there if you have it on your phone. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 35. We're going to look at the whole chapter here in just a moment. But first, I was wondering why in our pre-service prayer, um, I was wondering if I needed to sing O Holy Night because it's my favorite song. And my wife said, no, no, I was in rehearsal and Kelly will sing it. And I was deeply offended by this, why my wife wouldn't want her husband to sing it. And then I heard her sing Glory at the very end. And I said, oh, that's why. That's why. Yes, and amen. Thank you, worship team. And I hope that uh, that song uh, touched you as it did me. We're here in the season of Advent, and Advent is a season of waiting. The problem is nobody likes to wait, but the reality is is that waiting is part of life, and like it or not, the Bible is full of waiting. It's part of our life with God as well. How many of you have prayed a prayer that says, Lord, just give me patience when you got little kids running around? Lord, just give me Mercy and grace as this coworker is confronting you and you're just sitting there biting your tongue. Give me love, give me compassion. It's like we want it to just be downloaded into our heart and our tongue. But waiting is part of our life with God. Compassion, love, patience, these things aren't eligible for same day delivery. And Advent is the season of waiting that trains us, slows us, to even wait for Christmas. You remember waiting for that present under the tree. Advent is a part of that season that precedes Christmas. And it puts us in the story of Jesus, like all of the church calendar does, but it doesn't even start with the birth of Jesus. It starts with the wondering and waiting and longing for a king to come. Isaiah was written and compiled 700 years before Jesus. Can I say that again? 700 years they read poems and glimpses of God coming to reign, coming to bring justice, coming to do all the things we sang about, and they waited 700 years plus. Because last week, We were looking at another famous passage of Advent, that a king would come from David's line. Guess what? That was 250 years after David. Just in the Old Testament alone, we're pushing a thousand years of waiting, longing for a king. And Advent says, so when you want patience and compassion and love, give me more than 30 seconds and a quick prayer. It's an invitation to sit in it. It's an invitation to lean forward and say, okay, okay. Advent invites us to wait, to slow down long enough to perceive the slow, steady, and constant work of God's coming kingdom. Jesus tried to teach us this. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. How many of you planted seeds for peppers in your garden and You walked out the next day and said, where are my peppers? It takes time. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like leaven working its way through dough. The kingdom of God is like wheat growing. We say, enough, Jesus, I don't like to wait. So the church in its season says, then we need to be made to wait for Advent. 
And when you're slow enough, you can stop and smell the roses or you can perceive the fact that incrementally, uh, maybe God is on the move. Maybe I am more patient today than I was a year ago. Maybe I am a little bit more compassionate than I was when I was 20. And then you start to slow down and realize maybe God's still with me and he's not done. And maybe even though I look at the desert and the brokenness around me, maybe Advent can beckon us to anticipate joy like we're going to read in Isaiah 35. And this is so important because our world is anxiety ridden and we just keep doom scrolling waiting for the end of the world. But Advent beckons us to lean in, to wait actively, to be patient, to look for the slow, constant work of God beneath the surface. And we say, we're going to believe that joy and peace and love and hope, they are the final word and Christ is the last word, not disaster, despair, sin, death, and evil. And tonight it's especially important because Isaiah is going to speak to a people living amongst a wasteland. It takes a prophet to wake them up. It takes a prophet to wake us up to the advent or arrival of our king. A prophet we've been talking about is somebody with a God-inspired imagination to see the world according to God's desire. I know it looks like this. I know there's evidence that points to it's all going to hell in a handbasket, but I promise you that God is still on the move and it's bent toward justice and goodness. And so he says, this is God's desire and I'm gonna tell God's people. And it takes a prophet to imagine something as wild as a desert blooming or the blind seeing or the redeemed coming home rejoicing. Even though they blew it, even though they were kicked out of their home, God paves a highway and says, come on home. I am a father who loves you no matter what. And it's fitting that it's raining tonight because Isaiah imagines a dry, dusty, desert wasteland in chapter 34. And then we get extreme home makeover Israel edition in Isaiah chapter 35. That's what we're going to be looking at. It's a renovation poem, and it's a get ready sermon, Isaiah chapter 35. Verse 1. I'm reading tonight from the New Revised Standard Version because I really like some good news in one of these verses of this translation. The wilderness... And the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, which is a purple flower. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with what? Joy and singing. Now he lists three places that would be the equivalent of like the redwood forest or Hawaii or like the plains of Nebraska of fertile soil. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Here's the get ready sermon. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, don't fear. Here's the good news. Here is your God. 
Now imagine these next verses that may be shocking to you, but imagine that you've been knocked around by Babylon. You've been knocked around by Assyria. You've had your houses burned to the ground. Your families carted off to a foreign land in shackles and chains. And the whole time you're singing psalms like we read earlier, Psalm 146, and you say, but I thought that God was going to bless and protect us, and it looks dark now. Now Isaiah says, but you got to imagine with me, he will restore it, and he will come with vengeance. He will come with terrible recompense. And these people who made this world hell for you will have to answer for it. But ultimately, at the end of verse 4, he will come and save you. What does it look like when God shows up? Verse 5, then... The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be opened. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for what? Joy. For the waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool. And the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there. And it shall be called the holy way. Y'all heard about the ACDC song, Highway to Hell? This is the original version. It's a highway to heaven. Ready? The unclean shall not travel on it. But it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, will get lost. They shall not go astray. No lion shall be there. It'll be safe. Nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return. Homecoming at last. And they'll come to Zion, which is the the religious word of Jerusalem, with singing. An everlasting what? Joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain what? Joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. I want to show you a picture. It's a picture that I saw on the back of my search engine when I opened up a new window. And I said, thank you, Lord, for an illustration. Because I clicked on it and I said, what is this place? Does anybody recognize it? It's in South America, and it's called Playa Roja. I know Carla's back there, but does anyone want to translate Playa Roja? That's right. Why do you think they called it that? Because that's a red beach. What's fascinating about this on the coast of Peru is there's a literal desert space. And that is called a massif, which I had to look up. And a massive is a hard part of the earth's crust. That's granite, that's desert, that's a part of the earth's crust. And it meets the waves of the Pacific Ocean. What happens after centuries of contact with the blue waves against that hard, dry granite is that the waves wear away at it eventually and leave behind deposits of red that were there in the granite all along. When I talk about the slow, steady 
constant movement of God. Israel stands there looking around at the desolation and they say, "Um, this isn't at all headed in the right direction. And Isaiah steps on the scene and says, no, no, no. You may not perceive it, but imagine with me if you will. There is coming a time and you're gonna have to wait. But little by little, incrementally, God is going to arrive and literally transform the world around him. The color on Playa Roja has always been there. It took a movement of the wave to reveal it. Joy and peace and justice has always been there, undergirding God's good universe, but it's been distorted, cracked, and dried over, and it takes the move of God to reveal it and have it burst forth to the surface again. With Playa Roja as our picture and our image, this is our big idea for the evening. There's joy under the surface of every soil. Whether it's the desert that is a desolate, dead place, nothing's moving, nothing's growing in that relationship, in this situation, in my career, in my ailment, can we dare to believe that there's joy under the surface? There's joy under the surface of every dry land of my spiritual life and my life with God. Can we dare to believe that there's joy under the surface? Why? Because God is there. So our job then is to show up and sow seed in the desert so that when the rain comes, when God comes, life will burst out anew. But like Israel, it doesn't seem right When Isaiah says, strengthen your hands, we say, why? Nothing I do is going to work. When Isaiah says, hey, get those knees straight, quit being afraid, they say, have you seen Assyria? Have you seen what I'm staring down? Have you seen this addiction? Have you seen this brokenness? Have you seen the poverty that our community and world is living in? Of course I'm afraid. No. Show up. Keep waiting. Lean in, trust that there's a day coming, and keep sowing seeds, even in the dry and parched land, so that when the rain comes, the flowers will bloom. That is a crocus, by the way, on the slide. I had to look it up. Can we dare to believe it? Every year in Advent, I struggle to uh, define joy But I like this image of being underneath the surface because I think we all intuit that joy is deeper than happiness, yes? I tried all week and I thought about like how happiness was seeing my kids riding rides at Disney World. Like that made me happy. Not just because they were happy, because I liked it. I was happy. But Disney World is not a joyous place for me. Maybe for them. But what brought me joy was like the quiet moments in the hotel, like holding my daughters and thanking God for the miracle that they're here and living and breathing to enjoy it. 
that felt like joy. That was deeper. That was like a warm blanket around my heart. And the seven dwarf mind train was like putting my hands in the air and feeling cool and fun for about 90 seconds. I can't define it, but I think we can intuit that there's something under the surface. And my, my, my feeling is that even in a desperate situation or a dry ground, if we're present enough to the moment, and if we allow ourselves to imagine a day coming like this, and God undergirding the world and working slowly but surely, I think we can tap into it, even though it's tough and dark now. Can you believe or do you believe that joy is actually within reach if we choose to look deeper than the reality of the moment? That's hard. But do you believe that it's possible? I think the prophets would say it is because otherwise why are they telling people in their present context, keep waiting, keep hoping, keep longing. But the reason why we can do that is because of God's presence. I told you that this was a renovation poem and a get ready sermon. Here's what I mean by a renovation poem. You saw it. If you went back and if you're bored with what I'm saying right now, read chapter 34. It's a wild ride and it looks crazy. So when I say it's an extreme home makeover, like only the beginning of Isaiah 35 gives a hint of it. You notice this triad, wilderness, dry land, desert. I typed dessert. Is that two S's? I'm, I'm too old, but I do this every time. Am I the only one that has to go, dessert gets seconds, two S's? Is that just me? They got a teacher laughing at me over here. Jason's in the hallway. He, he feels my pain. It's desert. Wilderness, dry land, desert. And then you see this reversal. Lebanon, which was like the biggest, baddest forest of the ancient Near East, so you see this renovation. Carmel is rain. Carmel is rain. I feel like that's why in Richardson, the car wash I used to go to was called Carmel. Can someone look that up for me as I keep going? It's rain, it's water. This would have made perfect sense to them in the ancient Near East. And then Sharon is like the most fertile area they could have imagined. So in an agrarian society, these are like the tippy top wonderful places. And they're saying, in my brokenness, in our destruction, with Assyria that's coming to wipe us out, and we're wondering if God is still with us, Isaiah, are you sure that there's still joy and hope and that God will get the last word? And he says, yes. Why? Because here's your God. He's with us even in the midst of it. Because God's presence will bring us strength and renewal and growth. And the message is to keep showing up even with the darkness on your doorstep. Because we'll miss God if we bail. We can only see the slow and steady revelation and work of God if we keep showing up and looking. That's why Isaiah gives us also a get ready sermon. He says, strengthen your hands. To me, I've been thinking this week about how many of us said, I can't do this. Are you serious? I can't do this. He's called me to what? I can't love and forgive. I can't do that thing. I think about the knobbling knees, right? 
How many of us are fearful? There's something staring us down next week, the week after, just making it through the holidays. I can't go there. Or finally, the fearful hearts. Be strong, don't fear, because right after, the good news of the sermon is, here is your God. So to those of you who say, I can't do this work, I can't go this way, or I'm too afraid and I'm too worried, I can't do all this on my own. Isaiah says to you, exactly. So look up, show up, and see that God is with you. I love this exercise. We've talked about it so much in our church. It was like a pivotal illustration for us. Years ago, when we were just starting as the neighborhood church, we were fortunate enough to have this guy named Alan Fadling, who wrote a wonderful book called An Unhurried Life, and then An Unhurried Leader, and An Unhurried Lots of Stuff, right, Kara? Like all the, all the unhurried thing. It set off a whole thing. He came and did this lovely retreat with us, and he had us do an exercise where we had to list all the things we had to do. I, got, I still haven't bought any presents. Oh, yeah, I got to send that email this week. Oh, man, yeah, I've got to meet up and circle back with this. Oh, yeah, I've got to go order this and do that. Oh, yeah, and then we've got that choir concert. Then we've got this. And so you could just feel the temperature of the room just going, God, this is a terrible retreat. He's stressing me out. And y'all remember what he did next, right? How many of you were there? It's been a while. You remember? You remember? Because it was powerful. Now he says, go back to the top of your list, take a moment, take a breath, become present to God's presence. He is here with you now, and he will be with you when you step into those moments. So I need you to go back through your whole list and add two words, with God. Man, I got to go to that meeting with God. Man, I got to go to that doctor's appointment with God. Man, I've got that huge project with God. After Jesus' resurrection, he meets his weary and battered and bruised disciples that have been on this emotional roller coaster, and they go to the empty tomb, and the angel says, the risen Christ has gone ahead of you into Galilee. Go and meet him there. The risen Christ has gone ahead of you into Tuesday. Go and meet him there. The risen Christ has gone ahead of you into Friday. That thing, go meet him there. So then all of a sudden, every step is an arrival. And it feels like dry desert and dusty ground. But we say maybe under the surface God is here so I can strengthen my hands. I can, be, I can get my knees strong and take that step. And I need not go in fear because good news, here is our God. It's a get ready sermon. Don't miss it when he shows up. There's three time-traveling showing-ups or advents in view here. The first is a literal return to exile. I talked about this the last three weeks, and I'll tell you again that uh, at this point in Israel's history, and it's super confusing if you're not really uh, aware of the history of the Bible, but think in terms of the first several books, the first five books of the Old Testament as the law. That's like the earliest like formation of God's people and the earth. And then after that is the history books. And since Toby's unfortunately sick, she's not here, I can get away with the sports metaphor real fast. That is the play-by-play, -play, guys. They're telling you the history of what happened, right? They're Jim Nance that's a little more buttoned down saying, Ezekiel Elliott took it up the middle and only got one yard because we should have handed it to Tony Pollard. 
Those with ears can hear. They're telling you what's happening. That's the history books. Then you get to the prophet books after a little interlude with Psalms and Proverbs. And the prophet books are the play-by-play set on top of the same scene. That's Tony Romo saying, oh, Jim, uh, uh, Zeke ran up the gut and he's, oh man, he's just a bruiser and he's, I, he makes me crazy. Just like the prophets make some people crazy. It's the color commentary. What the color commentary is in Isaiah is saying, that day when the exiles return, which is chronicled in the king's books, and Nehemiah and Ezra, they came back and they started rebuilding the wall and they got the temple back and, and people were moved because they remembered that God is with them. Isaiah says, oh, Jim, it's gonna be like he paves a highway and it's gonna be glorious and beautiful and everybody gets to come back and we're ransomed from exile. You with me? That's the first moment in view. The second moment is this. Hey, can you see the slow work of God? And it took 700 years. And John the Baptist prepares the way. And he's paving a highway of the king. And when the king comes, he looks like a carpenter from Nazareth. And I baptized him and I remembered a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. But now I'm in jail. And now I'm wondering, even though he's my cousin, I mean, I saw him grow up. Is he really the one or should we expect another? You know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about John the Baptist, a prophet, the last prophet of the age or advent time before the arrival of the king. And he's sitting in jail and it feels like a desert. It feels like a wasteland. It feels like jackals. And he does what we all do when we have a rough patch and we're sick and our job stinks and we're spiritually dry. And we say, God must not be there because we love to let our circumstances dictate our reality. Man, I do this. I told Amy for six months, I've been telling you all, I've been in a funk. And I finally heard myself, I was like, Dude, you've been in a funk for three years? And I just thought, wait, am I letting my circumstances dictate my reality? I'm doing what John the Baptist did, and I say, are you really there? Do you remember what he says in Matthew 11? We read Psalm 146 today because it was part of the lectionary that lots of churches read. I'm doing Isaiah 35 because it's part of the lectionary that lots of churches read. Guess what else? Matthew 11 and Luke 7 is part of this lectionary. And what it says is this. When John says, are you really the king to come? Because it doesn't feel like it. It feels slow. And the waves take a long time to erode the beach. Jesus says, go tell John what you've seen and heard. You know what he says? The blind receive sight. The deaf can hear. The lame are leaping and walking and praising God. The prisoners are free, the hungry are sick, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, go report what you've seen with your eyes. It looks slow, but it sure changed that blind guy's life. It looks slow, but it sure changed his life. And he goes, yeah, but it doesn't look like the overthrow of Rome, man. We've been one long series of just being under the boot of somebody. He says, but this is what God looks like when he shows up. And when he shows up in your family, in your place, and you say, but look at our little church. God, are you with us? 
It looks a little bit like the 100 presents our church gave toward the 500 in our community, in our neighborhood, when Carla and I got to say a little bit of good news to about 100 people today and on down the line. It looked like a little bit of good news seed sowing, whether it was a present and a basketball and a skateboard and hot chocolate and some joy, or whether it's the coats that people from our community will receive from you all next Saturday at the clothes closet. It may not look like the whole overthrow of Satan and evil and death. That's fine. Jesus took care of that. We follow in his footsteps and little by little see more of that victory bearing and breaking into our reality little by little because what you do for this person in Jesus' name is not wasted and it matters. I talked to a church planner in our city who came from a huge church and we were encouraging each other this week. And he says, you know what, man? If I'm standing up on stage in front of 12 people and he says, and I said a good word about God and I prayed for God's blessing with someone, it's a good day. And I said, amen. It matters for one. It matters for that person. Every seed you sow, every time you show up, this is what it looks like. So John's in prison and Jesus says, see the glimmers and glimpses. I know it takes a while. I know you still feel dry. But if you keep showing up and keep sowing in the ground, every seed of prayer, every good work, every good word sown in Jesus' name isn't wasted. So pay attention to the joy that is surfacing now. Name it, celebrate it. Every step that you've taken toward Jesus is worth celebrating doesn't matter how small it is. What matters is that it, that person is transformed when God shows up. The third piece, and we can talk more about this another time, but the third thing in view, not just the return from exile, not just the arrival of the king, but there's the ultimate arrival at the end of time. And I want to say that when we talk about return, we are not talking about a rapture. This may be a lot to unpack in the 30 seconds I'm gonna talk about it, but for Christian teaching for 2,000 years, they spoke unilaterally of the second coming, the return of Jesus, when he'll judge the world, resurrect those who are in him, and then he'll renew all things. The end of Revelation, new heavens, new earth, coming together, finishing what he started. And 150 years ago, there was this doctrine based on one translation of one verse in Thessalonians where the images of Jesus coming in the clouds and we go to greet him in the air... And then they devised from there in a passage in Revelation 20 that we would leave and let the planet die and burn out before Jesus then comes back a thousand years later and renews all things. And if this is a lot of theology for you, bear with me. We'll have coffee and talk about it later. But I feel like it's Advent and we've been talking about the return and I want to say as clearly as possible, that's become a popular American theology in the last 150 years popularized by two study Bibles from the seminary that I went to. And good, faithful, loving, wonderful Christians believe that, that's great. 
And they have every right to do so because they study and exegete the Bible, and it's a doctrine. It's an understanding. But what I'm speaking of is a return. Because in those passages, when we meet him in the air, what they do is what everyone did for thousands of years when they welcome a returning king. They go to meet him, and with joyful procession, they welcome him back into the city. And that, I believe, is what's in view here and when Jesus comes at the end. But what's important for us is until that day when he renews all things, we see the seeds sprouting up in our midst and it looks like joy when my friend who was an addict for so many years was baptized about 10 years ago. And he came up out of the water like a shot. And he flung his hair back and water sprayed us. And he shouted the most beautiful, joyful shout you've ever heard. That's joy breaking through dry desperate wasteland. That's a seed of the gospel coming to full bloom, and we celebrate it today and anticipate it more. It looks like a year ago when Emily and Jocelyn and Amy and I got to walk alongside with a former member, Robin Craddock, and house a woman who we met because she needed a bed, and this church gave her a bed, and then this church provided her food and a worshiping community, and she was gathering out there when we were outside, and she was gathering in here, and she still talks to us every single week, and we pray with her, but she had no water, no power, and we got to welcome her into the rock with a sign that we made that said congratulations because she had just found out she can sign a lease in an apartment downtown. And it looked like our church paying for the first three months rent and then we haven't had to pay any more of it because God has met her needs and now she has a job and now she has people in her corner fighting for her. Is it every homeless person in Dallas? No way, but it mattered for that one. It's a flower blooming from a dry and desert wasteland and we celebrate it now and long for more to come. I know I've been covered a lot of ground, but as I wind down, I want to bring home this idea of sowing in the desert with the words of someone who wrote in the Lectio 365 app. We've talked about it a lot in our church. Download it. It will bless you. It's a nine-minute morning prayer. It's a few-minute evening prayer every day. It's got an audio. It's got a guide. There's even one for kids, but I have not forgot about this one from October 18th. He envisions in 1 Kings 17 and 18 where there was three and a half years of no rain. But then Elijah prayed again and the rain came and the earth produced crops. This implies that the farmers were willing to sow good seeds in the dust while there was no rain. Believing that one day the rain would come. Prayer sometimes can feel like this, as if I'm sowing seeds in the dust. 
Physically, it feels like nothing is happening. But in fact, that's not the case spiritually. And this phrase stuck with me and I haven't forgot it. I want to have seeds in the ground when the rain comes. Friends, some of you are in a dry and desolate place, and I'm inviting you to keep showing up and keep sowing seeds. Keep praying. God is listening. You just got to wait, and it's hard. And I just wonder what deserts need the seeds of prayer in our lives, in our community, in our church. Are we sowing seeds even if it feels dusty and difficult? Are you sowing seeds for your kids? Because when the rain comes, you want something to sprout. What broken places or people need the seeds of the gospel, not just good works like the presence and the clothes, but presence of relationship and inviting them into life with Jesus, life into our community. What path forward in your life or relationships or your struggle with sin and difficulty, what path forward needs God to make a way, a highway that you can walk in safety? And I'll leave you with this quote from the late, great Eugene Peterson. All suffering, all pain, all emptiness, all disappointment is seed. But sow it in God, and he will finally Bring a crop of joy from it. He will make it up to us. He will make it up to these little ones that have experienced hell on earth. I stubbornly believe, and Advent trains me to believe, it beckons me to believe that life and hope and goodness and peace and joy will have the last word. And I want to sow those seeds in faith that a crop of joy will come from it. Amen and amen. One day the wilderness will blossom with flowers and the desert wasteland will come alive with new growth and God's glory and splendor will be on full display. With this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear for your God is coming to save you. So go with confidence into the days ahead. And may the love of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, and the presence of the Holy Spirit be among you and within you and fill your hearts with joy. Go in peace.